Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 392. And our guest on this show is Curtis. And he is a listener of the show that has a great story from this past fall with an elk hunt that he had. And it's about the hunt, but it's about much more. We talk about family dynamics. We talk about training to continue to backpack hunt solo as Curtis does at the young age of 60 years old. We talk about lessons learned from the hunt, an incident that happened on the hunt, how to stay with it when you're not finding elk or seeing the sign you expect. Uh, There's just so much jam-packed into this conversation that I truly enjoyed and benefited from, and I know that you will as well. Before we dive into that conversation with Curtis, I just want to remind you guys, as always, that if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. You can also look for the link in the show description that says leave a message if you want to record a quick audio message to ask us a question for a future Q&A episode. And finally, if you can, in whatever podcast app that you use, if you can leave a rating or review, that would help us tremendously. We don't advertise this show. It grows and is supported simply by word of mouth and your support. And things like leaving a rating or review do help us with that. So thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Curtis. Well, Curtis, welcome to the Hunt Back Hunter podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. This is this should be fairly fun. I'm excited about it. It's uh, your listener of the show and kind of sent over a story about a hunt as well as an incident and also sent just some very helpful notes of different topics. And I could tell right away in the email that, you know, you're kind of thoughtful and somewhat thorough and really had some stuff to share uh, that I think listeners could benefit from. But I'm personally excited to hear more about myself. So thank you, man. Excellent. I hope I live up to that. <laughs> well, to start with, what's the uh, introduction, background, context, just for who you are for listeners? Sure, sure. Uh, so my name is Curtis Michael. Um, I live uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm, I'm about 60 years old. Um, I grew up in Seattle. Uh, grew up in a hunting and fishing family. Um, I'm, I started hunting, you know, in my early teens um, I'm left-handed, so when it was time to get me a, a gun, my mom and dad ended up getting me the ultimate in ambidextrous rifles that were available back then. It's the, uh, you know, the Winchester Model 94 in 3030. Um, it, it, was, it was a great gun, um, you know, uh, open sights, you know, it was really, it's a really handy carbine. I, actually, I still have it. Um, and uh mostly we hunted blacktail deer here in western washington and um uh you know we didn't have moa or maximum point blank range or dope or any of that other stuff back then you know we we hung up a paper plate at 25 yards and if you could hit the middle of it about the middle of it then we'd move it out to 100 yards and and if you you know if you could hit it out there you were good to go um and one thing I noticed with that that thirty thirty was the uh, 
the bead on the end of the barrel was uh, was big enough to cover a paper plate at a hundred yards. So any any of us that that shoot those old open sight know what I'm talking about, and that'll that'll come into play here as as we move on a little bit more. Anyway, I shot a few deer with that, and then um, eventually saved up and and moved to a Remington 700 in 30-06 left-handed bolt. Um, and that's what I used for, for quite a while hunting. Um, I joined the military after I got out of high school and, uh, uh that wasn't so great for hunting. Um, I was in the Navy, so I was, you know, stationed on a ship and traveling around. I didn't get to hunt a whole lot, but I ended up teaching at a school over in Idaho, out on the Idaho national labs. And, uh, so I lived in Southeast Idaho and I got to do a lot of hunting out there thought I'd give bow hunting a try. I was down at the archery shop one day and, and there was a, a videotape on of Larry D. Jones in uh, elk fever. And he was actually talking to elk, you know, I mean, and today that's, everybody does that or knows about it, but back then it really wasn't known. And, uh, and that, that hooked me right there. I've, I've been just fascinated with elk, um, ever since. So, uh, so I did some hunting, uh, there in Idaho. And then when I got out of the service, I moved to Western Oregon, went to engineering school, started a career, got married, started having kids. And again, as we all know that that ends up getting away in the way of, uh, of hunting a little bit, but I did what I could. Um, now the kids are older and, uh, et cetera. So I've had more time to hunt um a number of years ago i don't remember about how long maybe 20-ish years ago we uh transferred up into western washington as part of my work back into western washington and as i was reviewing the the regulations uh you know trying to refamiliarize myself with washington um i noticed the muzzleloader season we have a specific muzzleloader season up here um you know part of my issue with the archery seasons is I, I do a lot of salmon fishing to keep the freezer full and the, the fall archery season was getting in the way of my fall salmon season and, and vice versa. So this muzzleloader season was just a couple weeks off. So, uh, that, that, you know, uh, really fit nicely with what I, what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, when does that muzzleloader season fall for Washington? So it starts the first Saturday of October. Okay. And and it goes for seven days. So so we're right at the end of the rut. There's still mm-hmm. some there's still some rutting going on, depending on the year. Of course, you know that first Saturday, sometimes it falls on the first of October, sometimes it falls on the seventh of October. But there's still some rutting activity, but it's kind of at the tail end. So in some years, you know, the big boys have done their stuff and they're off in sanctuary mode. And and there's still some younger bulls around that are that are tending the cows. Uh, in other years, you still have, you know, the bigger bulls, the you know, with the the herding kind of activity. I'm curious now, having just this fresh perspective of your history and your background, and um, hunting since you were young, and going through these transitions over decades of moving and military and having kids and all that stuff, and. Yeah. You now being 60, one of the things we wanted to touch on a bit was you mentioned fitness for the older guy uh, and that you are sometimes uh, jealous of us younger guys. Yeah. But yeah, just talk about that. So you as 
at 60, still hunting hard, still doing backpack hunts, still hunting solo, which again, all things we'll get to, but yeah, what are some of the practical takeaways from guys who are here in this and whether they're like myself in the thirties and want to look ahead at longevity or they're in the forties, fifties, sixties, um, just any takeaways from your personal experience of being 60 and still getting out there and getting after it. Sure. Yeah. That, that's a great thing to talk about. Um, so again, I'm, I'm jealous of you younger guys. I mean, I remember the day when, you know, I could wake up and go, Oh, hunting season is tomorrow. I, I better get in shape and I could do a half a dozen pushups and I'm ready for a season. Um, holy cow, you, you, the body just kind of slows down a little bit. So, you know, the big things are, are year round training and year round, um, mobility. So, you know, as we get older, you know, the job or whatever else gets in the way, you end up maybe not being as active as you were when you were young. And, uh, so you really have to make it purposeful. You've got to, you know, focus on the fact that, you know, I've got to work out all the time. Um, I think it was, oh, Dan Prevost. Mike Prevost. Mike Prevost. Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he talked about, um, uh, the, um, you know, keeping yourself in shape, um, you know, the, the rest and recovery. That's the big thing that I've noticed. I can't just plan a workout every single day unless I modify the workout. Uh, because my body does need uh, rest and recovery um, more now than it than it did back then. Um, I, I practice jujitsu, so I'm in the jujitsu gym about three times a week, um, and that really does a great job of you know keeping your cardio up and keeping your flexibility, and uh, that's very helpful. The other thing that I found really really helpful is uh, stretching on hunting days before I go hunting. So if I'm, if I'm like, if I'm hunting from a vehicle, let's say I'm at home and I, and I get up and I drive to my hunting location, you know, I could be in the truck for an hour or two and, and I, it's not good at this age just to jump out of the truck and head off into the woods. And so a habit that I've developed is I make sure I get there early enough that I can get out of the truck and stand, you know, in the dark and the cold and listen and, just you know change from that that road mentality to the forest mentality and i and i do some stretching so that i'm ready to go if i'm on a backcountry hunt i make sure i get up early enough that i can do a little bit of light stretching uh before it's time to head out that seems to really help me on my daily hunts so so that's that's the big picture right there is constant training you you know you gotta train all year round and the training involves strength and flexibility yeah the the flexibility mobility stretching stuff is i mean gosh i'm guilty of this i know how important it is but it's the easiest thing to neglect right like i find it much easier to go out and crush myself in some sort of workout or, you know, do something very, very difficult and physical and just overlook and neglect that mobility and things like that. And I think that's just a lot of younger guys would tend to be more in, the, in that situation. Um, but from a longevity perspective and really just an injury prevention perspective, I think is huge of taking the time to do that. As you said, whether that's year round and I love how you said specifically on a hunt, because it would be 
easy to hop out of the truck or hop out of the tent and just start hiking. And especially if you have a pack on things like that, and just kind of take a misstep or a little bit of a tumble and not be warmed up, not be mobile and really create an injury that didn't have to happen necessarily if you were uh, on top of your mobility. Absolutely. And those habits that we set earlier in life, you know, that's, that's what carries us on, uh, you know, through life. And so while you don't need it, you know, to, today you're probably okay just not doing that. But, but if you establish those habits now, then those habits are just going to help you, uh, you know, enjoy the years as they go on. Well, let's dive into, there's plenty of topics that we'll get to as we tell this story, but let's dive into this hunt kind of that you first um, emailed about and I guess begin to set up the scenario and tell the story and dive in wherever you'd like to. Okay, great. So um, uh, so I, I like the backcountry base camp idea. So uh, the the terrain that I hunt, you know, part of, part of the thing I was talking about with my 30-30 when I was young and, and being able to cover a paper plate at 100 yards, I found that I couldn't hunt open areas. So I really liked hunting closed in uh, thicker forest and brush and stuff like that. And so trying to carry uh, camp on my back for that style of hunting, I didn't feel like I could really be effective in the, in you know, I made a lot of noise and and it was, you know, hard to sneak and stuff like that. So I really like the backcountry base camp kind of idea. So I, um, I hike in in these areas that I hunt three to five miles, set up my camp, um, and then hunt, you know, uh, hunt out from, uh, from my base, you know, various directions on, on each individual day. So, um, that way, you know, I can unload all my stuff. I carry about a 16 pound day pack. Uh, you know, I've heard Paul Medell talk about what he has in his pack and, and, you know, seen a few pack dumps and stuff like that. I carry about 16 pounds. Um, that's, you know, food, water, first aid, uh, stay overnight, you know, whatever else I need. So, um, so this year was very dry up in the area where I was hunting. Normally, you don't have to think about water. There's water everywhere. And this year, the only streams that had water in it were streams that have a name on a map. So any of the other little springs and streams in this area were just dry creek beds, which was which was really interesting. I'd never um, I'd never really hunted a place that was that dry. Uh, so, you know, and it's like my home woods. So it was really interesting, uh, you know, making sure I had water. Um, for, it was the first time this year that I actually filled a dirty bag and, and carried a dirty bag instead of, you know, just filtering everything because I just didn't have enough uh, filtered water even after I filled my containers. So um, anyway, the significance of that is that the elk were – uh, had a different pattern than what I'm what I'm used to, and um, and and actually, uh, so it's a seven day hunt. Um, I missed the first day of the hunt, and I'll and that I'll tell you about that as we as we go forward. Um, but I didn't see any elk through these first few days of hunting, and normally, if I don't see elk, I'm going to pack up and go somewhere else. Uh, even if it's just a few miles, 
Um, or, you know, I might go back down to the truck and go to a whole different different area. But I, I don't like to hang out if, if I'm not seeing out. But this year, every morning, I was seeing tracks. So I knew there were elk around. I just wasn't seeing their bodies. You know what I mean? I, I just wasn't seeing them. So I started, uh, I don't carry game cams or anything like that with me, but I wanted to know where they were going. So I found some water holes and I found the trails where they came and went. And I put sticks across the trail from one branch to another across the trail. And then I could come back the next day and see which sticks were moved. That told me, you know, which which trails they came and went on and which way the stick was moved. Like, Oh, these sticks are pushed toward the pond and these sticks are pushed away from the pond. So I could tell where the elk were coming and going to these uh, little watering ponds at night. And then just, you know, using my onyx, I started picking apart the area, trying to eliminate places where I didn't think they would, or how could they get to these ponds, you know, with the most cover, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and it ended up being fruitful. I, uh, um, you know, on the afternoon of the very last day, um, I was able to, uh, to find a bull. So, and, and what happened there was I was hunting some benches and these are these are long narrow benches um, that have some swales. Uh, the swales go kind of you know down the ridge uh, while you're you know walking parallel to the ridge on the on the bench. So you're you're dropping down in and then you're coming up over and you can see the next little area. And then you drop down in the next big swale and you come up again. And I, and I had come up to some a big brush patch that was probably about as big as a you know a baseball diamond and um as i skirted around this brush pile with the brush off to my right um i got about maybe 20 yards uh past the the leading edge of the of the brush pile um some elk took off so the brush is off to my right uh multiple elk took off running to my right and behind me um well a couple of things that i think we know about elk um one is as a prey species if one of them sees a danger and runs the other ones may not have seen the danger they don't they may not know what the danger is they may they may run because they're supposed to uh, so I think we know that. I think another thing that we know is that that bull elk have a fatal flaw in that they want to stop and turn around and see what it was. If they didn't see you or smell you, but something scared them, they want to turn around and see what it was. So knowing that, as soon as these elk started running, I turned around and ran back to that leading edge of the of that brush patch so I could peek around it. And sure enough, here's this guy. I'm I'm kind of in the bottom of one of these swales, and he's 25 yards or so from me. Looking back in that brush, he wasn't. He didn't see me. He wasn't looking at me, and he was ever so slightly quartering away. So, um, 
uh, we here in Western Washington, we have a, th- a three-point minimum for the bulls, and and I don't pay much attention to antlers. I could, you know, I could tell that he had enough, so that was fine with me. And uh, so I raise up and I shoot, and big puff of smoke happens right out the end of the barrel. Well, um, so what I'm shooting is uh, an inline muzzleloader. Uh, I'm shooting a 300 grain Hornaday sabotage bullet with 130 grains of powder. So it's it's coming out at just barely under 2,000 feet per second, which gives me over 3,000 foot-pounds of energy. And at the distance that he was at, it would still have you know 2,500 foot-pounds of energy. Um, and another thing that I'd like to mention here is – uh, you know, associated with get, getting older is, you know, my eyes aren't what they used to be. And here in Washington on our muzzleloaders, we have to have open sights. So uh, I've got a peep sight in the rear. And I used to have this fiber optic sight up front. Um, but what I figured out was that fiber optic sight was 9 MOA. And that's huge. That covers a lot of target when you're trying to to aim so um so i ended up getting this uh i think it's made by williams it's a it's like a globe site for the front it's it's almost like a peep site for the front that has a little aperture in it so when i aim now i'm looking at a crosshair inside a circle that's inside a circle mm-hmm. and and my groups have shrunk uh tremendously it's so much easier to aim with that site so you know again I had picked a spot just barely behind the crease um, uh, on the elk. I mean, pretty much the same place you'd want to hit with an arrow. Um, uh, and pull the trigger, the puff of smoke goes away. Or puff of smoke is there. The puff of smoke goes away, and the elk is still standing there. And and I'm like, did I miss? Did I shoot at his horns? I mean aiming with that new system is very unconscious for me now you know i just look at the spot that i want to hit and i pull the trigger and normally when i do that stuff dies and and he's still standing there and it it really took me back um and he was just kind of standing looking around and then he turned and walked off the other side of the swale so i quickly reloaded um i carry you know some speed loaders in my bino harness and i went up to where he was and there's some tracks, but there's no blood. And and I'm like, what did I do that he was right here? And I and I and I'm looking around and I'm not seeing anything and I I go probably twenty yards the direction that I think that he went and I see some uh I see some antlers, but they're not high enough off the ground and they're not at the correct angle for an a standing elk and i'm like okay there he is so i step around these bushes and he's laying kind of looking at me um and and i'm you know i i don't know i i have no idea if i even hit him at that point i can't imagine that i've missed but um so i'm trying to see if his chest is rising or anything i slowly get my binos out and i'm watching his chest and it's not moving and then a fly landed by his eye and he didn't flinch. So I said, okay, he's, he's not alive. I, you know, snuck down to him and poked him and sure enough, he was dead. So, and he's a dandy, 
he's a, a he's a five point, but he's got really thick. Uh, he's got a lot of mass, and um, and he was big. I mean, you know, we know that when we walk up to an elk, they look big on the ground. But this guy was was pretty large. Now these are Roosevelt elk, and and so they have a larger body and smaller antlers than the Rocky Mountain elk. Uh, but still, it just is amazing to me how how large these things are when they're on the ground and how much how much work you've got in front of you. Yeah. So, wow. So that's the uh, that was the scenario of um, of you know getting that elk. That's awesome. There's so much good in there. Um, you know, you talk about setting up the sticks and like assessing their travel routes, um, which trails they were using, which direction. Um, I'm just imagining that for some listeners, like I never would have thought of something so simple. Right. (laughs) And it just, it's a, it's like a stark contrast to, you know, we're so reliant on technology and things like that. And sometimes just these little simple skills of woodsmanship can be a huge game changer on a hunt. Uh, so I'm so glad you shared that. That's super cool. The, you mentioned it in there, but just to to pull on this thread in case people missed it, that this was the last day of the hunt. Um, and you said it was, you're doing the seven day hunt. And really this elk that you just ended up shooting, we just talked about, I think you said was the only live elk you actually saw that whole season. So you talked a bit about the challenges of it being dry and of seeing some sign, but not seeing elk. And um, just want to camp on that idea for a minute. Cause it always comes up of like, how do I stay in it? How do I keep motivation? Um, you know, you talked about not moving when you normally would have because of the signs that you were seeing. So, um, anything else kind of on that topic of, you know, really just staying in it when you weren't seeing elk, you weren't seeing the sign that you were used to conditions were different and really keeping that motivation up. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why is it that we're out there? That's what it comes down to. What's our why? Um, you know, if, if you're out there to, um, you know, if you're out there for some big antlers, you can, you know, get on Instagram and say, look at what I did. You know, you might run out of, run out of motivation after a few minutes or a few days. But I, I just love being out there. I mean, how many, how many people do you know that, get to sit in the woods while they're eating a snack and watch a squirrel put cones into a little hollow log and get ready for winter. Stuff like that is just really cool to me. Um, and, and just, just everything that we get to do while we're out there in the woods. And, and so, you know, I'm out there to solve a puzzle and, and enjoy myself. Uh, and if I get an elk, Hey, you know, that's icing on the cake. If if you look at, I mean, I, I know there's a few people out there that, that get an elk every year or multiple if they hunt, you know, different states. But for a lot of us, you know, we don't get an elk every year. And, and, and you know, why are we out there? I'm out there to enjoy the woods and, uh, um, you know, see, see the sights. Uh, there's, there's, animals that I see that I'm not even hunting. Um, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll see a deer 
and and I don't hunt deer during that season. There's not very many deer up in that area, but you know, great. Let's watch this deer for a while and see what we can learn about about the animal and and their behavior. So so that's what it is for me. It's just a fascination with being uh, out in the woods and 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 enjoying that. And you know, sometimes it is kind of frustrating um, to not see an animal. Um, most of the time in the place in this these areas that I hunt, most of the time I'm seeing at least a cow or two every day. Uh, some sometimes I see more, but but I have never gone that long in a season and not even seen an elk. So I, I don't know if that answered your question. No, it's great. It's that's very very helpful way to put it. It's just that basic of why am I here? I've I found myself I think at first unintentionally having this thought but now it's something i'll intentionally tell myself on a difficult hunt or just when things aren't going my way or what have you is like i found a i can't remember the specific situation i first had this thought but you know tough hunt stuff's not going my way i can find reasons to complain animals aren't cooperating weather sucks yada 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 and they literally like it was an unintentional thought it just came to mind as like what do i have to complain about right now because i'm out side like doing something i love in a great place um you know living in the woods like there's so much good and yeah i could focus on the bad and the things that aren't going my way from a hunting success perspective but that literal thought of what do i have to complain about right now is something i come back to quite a bit yeah um and now more intentionally come back to it's like um yeah, on, on several instances, on several hunts this year, it's like, what do I really have to complain about? I can find something for sure. But at the end of yeah. the day, it's like, I'm here, I'm doing this, I'm alive, I'm healthy, I'm in the wild. Like, this is great, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So so there's a couple other things that I want to talk about there. It always hasn't been that way for me. I mean, there were hunts a few years ago. Uh, you know, I talked about this, this muzzleloader hunt that starts on Saturday and is a week long. Uh, there were hunts where I went home on Tuesday. I barely made it through half the season. And as I was looking at that, you know, what's going on? Well, some of it was, I really missed my family. You know, I missed my wife and my kids. And, and what I looked at from that was, um, was I being the husband and the dad that I wanted to be during the rest of the year? Or was there some maybe little bit of guilt in there about, uh, you know, that I wasn't as as good of a dad or as good of a husband as I wanted to be through the rest of the year, and I felt guilty about being gone from them. And and then after I improved that relationship, uh, those relationships, then I I felt free, if you want to say it that way, I felt free to be able to. Uh, you know, live fully while I was with them and live fully when I was off hunting. So, um, so that's, you know, that's just another thing to think about. Again, you know, it wasn't always, you know, I just wasn't always, it, it wasn't always easy for me just to be gone for that entire time. Yeah, that is so, so good and something I can personally relate to. And Steve and I have talked about, you know, obviously we both have kids and we both, go on trips and hunts and adventures. And um, part of what we wrestle with with that is we do like genuinely miss our families or in a way want to be home and not miss stuff with our kids. And that's all good and healthy. But 
what you just said on are you making the most of when you are home all the other times and that being i think you use the word freedom is definitely a way i would put it of kind of i don't want to say without guilt but definitely almost <laughs> without guilt of like this is my time because I have invested myself in my family and my wife and my kids and taking care of them and being with them and being present, making sure that I'm taking them on cool trips and adventures, even if it's a small thing. Right. Um, and then when it comes down to it and it's like, all right, here's these seven or eight days that I'm gone. I'm not saying it's easy. I miss them. I want to be with them. And I know it's difficult on them when I'm gone, but at the same time, it's like, it's easier to be a bit more carefree because I know I've given them my best in all the other days. Absolutely. Yes. And, and when you take them on scouting trips, um, you know, there's some places that aren't too far from the house where, where we can go see some elk and Hey, you guys, let's go for a hike. And we get up early and we sneak out. And oftentimes when we go on those, we, we, you know, we actually see some animals and, uh, uh, you know, it's it's down near some private and and, you know, it's not really an area to hunt, but it's great. It's a great place to take the kids and then they see them and then they're involved in in what you're doing. And then you bring an animal home and they help butcher it. And, you know, hey, we're having elk burgers tonight. And, you know, they're all excited because we're having elk burgers. And uh, yeah, that's just that's the really fulfilling part. Yeah, I love it. I hope that uh listeners are enjoying this conversation as much I personally am. <laughs> Good. Um, all right. So you have this elk down. Uh, first, before we get to that, what do you, so you, you had the shot smoke, smoke clears. He's still there. Takes off. Yeah. What do you think happened there? Just a delayed reaction. Was the shot good? Well, uh, the shot was great. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk about that as I rolled him over. Uh, the, the shot went in um, just barely behind the crease on on the left side, and the bullet was under the hide on the right side. And, um, you know, about a third of the way up, uh, and it was, it was a perfect shot. Now, um, the bullet went between ribs on the way in and between ribs on the way out. So it didn't touch anything that, uh, that would have, you know, had a large forceful impact. Like if I would have spined him, you know, all that force probably would have knocked him over, but, but it's just like, it's just like hitting him with an arrow. You know, the arrow goes through and causes the damage, but it doesn't, it's, it's not like a punch to the animal that's going to make them, um, you know, fall over or something. And he was focused somewhere else. So I don't think he, you know, I don't think he was super tense. You know, he heard this big bang and then he walked off. Um, uh, and he got, he got probably, uh, like I said, an overall maybe 30 yards from where he was standing when I shot and he was over the swale. So I couldn't see him, but there were signs in the moss that he was laying in, of um of staggering um there was a big drag mark from an antler so um you know so so he was he was in the dying process got it 
So there's an incident as you break down the elk. Um, And again, feel free to talk about precursor to this or jump straight into it. But there's there's a lot to kind of talk about and learn from what happens next, if you will. Yeah. Okay. So I've got the elk down. You know, I do all my all of my uh, right away stuff. Send an in reach message to my wife. You know, I've got one of the the preset messages that says, you know, got one down more later. And and that just kind of lets them know what, you know, what the status of things are in the woods. Normally I check in uh, once or twice a day with the family on the in reach. Um, and, uh, and then I send this message off. Um, the other thing is, um, of course, you know, I notch my tag. Um, so, so I normally hunt solo. But a couple years ago, I met some guys up in this area that hunt up in there regularly, and uh, and we just we camped near each other. Uh, we got we got you know we were kind of on our way in same time day before the season. We got talking about uh, hey, if we camp near each other, we're going to scare less elk away than if we're scattered all over the mountain. So um, uh, so I've just been camping with them. I over the last couple of years, I've never seen them off the mountain. You know, we text a couple of times through the year and we have in reach message, uh, in reach information if we need help when we're on the mountain. Um, but you know, they're kind of like, uh, you, you know, just the guys that I, that I camp around, whatever. Anyway, one of them was still there. Every, everybody else that was hunting around there, there were about eight guys that were hunting in that area earlier in the season. Everybody was gone. Uh, you know, dry, too hot, no elk, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it was just me and one other guy that were still up on this whole ridge area. So I sent him a message and uh, and gave him a, a bearing and a range from camp where he could find me. And then in Washington, we don't have to wear uh, hunter orange during the muzzleloader season, but I carry a an orange vest. I took that and I put it up in the top of a small uh, fir tree so that he'd be able to see it from, you know, a hundred yards around or so. So if he just barely missed me, he'd still be able to kind of see where I was at. And then, uh, then I started in on this elk. Um, I don't do the gutless method. Uh, I've tried it. Uh, I first read about it in a, Oh, in a book, back in the late 1980s and um i think they called it no mess field dress at the time that we didn't call it gutless method but anyway what i find is when i'm working by myself especially on an animal size of an elk i work so slowly that the stomach starts to swell and and it gets in the way and it causes me problems so you know i'm not doing some kind of a like pristine surgical level uh, you know, field dressing, but I'm just getting the guts out of the way. Um, and then, and then it's easier for me to, to work on the elk. Also, I keep, I normally keep the heart and the liver. And, and the other thing is, you know, all this stuff is really just interesting and fascinating to me. I want to see how did this animal die? What did I do? Where did my bullet go that caused the animal to die? And, um, and so you got to open up the the gut cavity to see what happened. In this particular case, 
the bullet went in and took out parts of both lungs and took the top off the heart. Um, and so he had, you know, enough oxygen in his system to, to live long enough to walk 30 yards. Um, but I just, I just find that stuff fascinating. So anyway, so I pull the guts out. I start taking this elk apart. Um, that, that other guy that was camped up there shows up so that he can help me. And so, you know, we're taking meat off and getting it in game bags and, and, uh, just like one swale over from where we were, uh, there was a, a downward draft of cool air. So he was hanging the meat in there. And so, so you mentioned the error precursors. So let's talk about this a little bit. There's a, there's a field of study called human performance, human performance factors. And it's not really about your human performance, like how much can you deadlift? No, it's about what are the factors that go into how much you can deadlift? Like if you have something really good or something really bad that has happened to you today, you're probably not going to get a PR on your deadlift because you have this stuff that's distracting you. And so there's stuff about your environment that you're in. There's stuff about the individual task. And there's also stuff about your individual capabilities that go into this. Well, let's, let's talk about a few of those that affected me here. I had, I had a long hunt where I didn't see animals. So, you know, that just by being out there for those days, there's some fatigue, uh, hiking around every day, trying to solve, you know, the puzzle of where the elk can be. Uh, that's some fatigue. Um, a couple of things that I hadn't mentioned. Um, I missed one day of the season, the first day, because I had to travel for a funeral for a, a good friend of mine that I was in the military with. And so, you know, I got back late and then, uh, you know, then the next day I finished putting my stuff together and got out there. So I had that plan on me that I'd been kind of, you know, dwelling on in the woods for the week. Also, this was the, uh, the first hunt. Um, I'd, I'd lost my dad also last year. This was the first hunt I'd been on since I lost my dad. So I had those, those things going on inside me. Also, I just got this elk. You know, this is such a great thing. Um, so that, you know, that is, that's a thing that's going on inside you. And then something else that I didn't do. Normally, when I get an animal, the first thing I do is I sit down and, you know, make a, a freeze-dried meal and just sit there with the animal and, and think about the hunt and, you know, reflect and enjoy and take on some nutrition take on some water because I'm going to be busy for a few hours. Well, I felt some time pressure. That's another one of these error precursors felt time pressure because it was late in the afternoon and it was going to be getting dark and I wanted to get this elk broke down before dark. And so, so we're cutting everything, literally the last piece of neck meat that had to come off of this animal. Um, I was holding the meat with my right hand. I was holding the knife with my left hand. And, and I think the knife kind of stuck in one of those little bony protrusions on the spine as I was cutting this off. Anyway, as I added a little pressure to get the knife free, I saw the knife go through my pant leg 
and come back out. Now I'm using um, one of the replaceable scalpel blade type knives. And so they are very sharp. I didn't feel anything, but as deep as the knife went in, I knew it was bad. And so I just, you know, dropped the meat and the knife and dove to my pack, which was, you know, just a couple feet to my right. And uh, right in the top is my first aid kit. And I didn't even pull my pant leg up. I didn't want to spend the time doing that. Um, I uh, pulled out some gauze, tore it open. Then I lifted my pant leg up and and clapped it over the wound. Um, it ended up being a cut just above my left knee, just on the outside of my leg that was about four inches long and almost three quarters of an inch deep at the deepest spot. Uh, that that super sharp knife just laid me right open. So so how do we stop bleeding? Um, you know, I, I certainly encourage everybody who is uh, going in the backcountry to take some kind of a first aid. Um, back in back when I was younger, I worked on a wilderness rescue team, so I have you know quite a bit of first aid experience. Um, but how do we stop bleeding? We use uh, first we use direct pressure, and then we try to raise it above the heart, and uh, um, and then you know we'll use a pressure point, you know like like. Uh, in in the groin or the inside of the arm kind of in, by the armpit um you know again you guys could research this and look at it but but um so i'm using direct pressure here and the blood isn't really slowing down um and it actually was quite concerning to me and i and i looked at it and and what was happening was i was pushing on the opening of the wound but the wound was so deep that i wasn't being able to push down deep inside it uh, to get the bleeding to stop. Well, I carry quick clot um, and I also carry a tourniquet. Um, uh, there was a, I think it was an elk 101 thing a couple years ago and he got the arrow up, stabbed into his calf and they went through that whole thing. And, and ever since then I've, I've carried a tourniquet because you know, we're out there uh, we just might need that. So again, if you get a tourniquet, learn how to use it so that you can, you know, use it quickly and effectively. So, but I didn't think I needed the tourniquet, tourniquet, but I did grab the quick clot and, and I kind of opened the wound and shoved the quick clot down inside. Quick clot is a, uh, it's a powder that they put in some gauze and the powder does two things. It, um, it absorbs liquid, so that uh, absorbs the water out of the blood and leaves a high concentration of clotting factor. So you're, so it's going to uh, make a, a, a clot sooner. Uh, and the other thing is that as this powder absorbs water, it swells up, so it actually can help to apply pressure to the wound to make the bleeding stop. So, um, so I crammed that down in, that's a concept called wound packing where you get the, the gauze down inside and that got the bleeding to stop. Um, and, and then, you know, so then let's think, uh, about, you know, what else, if that wouldn't have stopped, I could have had the tourniquet that I could have applied. I also have my in reach with the SOS. 
that I could have um, pushed if we needed that, if we got to that point. So, so you know, there's that progression of, of what you need to do. But I was able to get it stopped. Um, and again, it's above my knee. So I took the gauze and the quick clot and I wrapped it with an ACE bandage to hold it on. And it, and it was good. As long as I kept my knee straightened, the bleeding stopped. If I bent my left knee, uh, it would it would start trickling blood again. So, so now what do we got? We got, you know, we're four miles back in. Our camps are about three miles in. And we've got a pretty good trail. We were just, uh, I don't know, 400 yards or so from a, a good trail that would lead us all the way down to my truck. And, uh, and it's dark. And we've got well over 300 pounds of elk meat on the ground or hanging in the trees. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's where we are right there. So let's, you know, let's again, talk about these error precursors. I don't know if we covered those enough or if you had any other questions about those. No, that's great. I mean, I think touching on them uh, as you did was helpful and feel free to mention others. And then just so listeners know, uh, you had sent over a document that kind of lays all these air precursors out, like the different um, specific precursors, but also broken out into different categories. And that is definitely something we can share uh, with the podcast as well. So just so listeners know, as you're talking about these, we will go ahead and share the full list that people can check out. Sure. So um, again, this is a human performance factors, error precursors. Um, you know, there's, there's things like, again, time pressure. Are you in a hurry? Do you have a, do you have a high workload? Do you have a whole lot of things going on or simultaneous things? Sometimes it's even repetition, uh, you know, repetitive actions that you're used to doing a lot. So you're maybe not paying attention as much. Um, likewise, on the other side of that, if it's a brand new technique that you haven't used before or you're unfamiliar with it. So here, um, this elk was 2022. The last elk I got was in 2020. It's been a couple of years since I've taken apart an elk. So um, it's certainly not something that is repetitive for me. Um, then there's things about, you know, stress. Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? You know, I mentioned that I, you know, had some had some friends and family lost this year. So that adds a little bit of stress uh, to my mental picture. Um, so it's just things like that. Uh, yeah, the document that I sent over is from a, a Department of Energy manual that I came across in some of my human performance work. Um, so you could, uh, if somebody's interested, they could look up the Department of Energy Human Performance Manual and, and read about these things. So, and this just isn't in hunting. This is in, you know, how do you respond to, you know, any event that occurs, uh, uh, you know, in, in your life, um, whether it's at work or at home or in the woods or whatever. So. You mentioned folks having some sort of uh, first aid training or information what what have you cuz i'm i'm impressed by the way you describe your not only reaction of the situation cuz reactions instincts or what have you but your assessment of it and even in the moment you assessing okay how deep is this and then 
bleeding and stopping bleeding and how and okay am i going to apply the quick quick clot and all that and then obviously that is determined by the fact that you have that there and ready and accessible so what what type of training have you had um leading up to this point so when i was in a back i was on a backcountry rescue team and we had um uh you know about 80 hours of initial training um on you know unsupported uh, first aid. So unsupported means you can't just dial nine one one. If you take a if you take a standard first aid class, you know they're going to teach you first aid when you can just reach for your cell phone and dial nine one one, and somebody's going to be on the way, and all you have to do is focus on your patient for a few minutes, and then the professionals are going to be there. Um, and they have all kinds of equipment and everything else. Well, when we're in the back country, you know, we don't have that option. So if you take a basic first aid class, think about your application, you know, that you're not going to be able to just call 911. And so, you you know, you'd, you'd have to take it another step. You might be able to ask your instructor. I know that there are uh, wilderness first aid courses that are available, Um that are 50 to 80 hours of, um, of first aid training. Um, uh, there's also tons of stuff on the internet. Now, if you take one of those courses, you know, you get a nice little piece of paper that says, Oh, I've successfully completed this. Well, most of us don't really need that piece of paper. What we need is the skills. And so you can, you know, get on YouTube and there's tons of information on there about this. And, you know, this would be kind of a hunting prep thing, um, you know, along with your workouts and your, you know, firing your weapon and prepping your gear and stuff like that. There's tons of information out there about what you would put in an individual first aid kit and how you would use it. Don't put something in there if you don't know how to use it. Uh, make sure you know. And you want to practice bandaging kids love that hey you know let's pretend you have a huge cut on your arm right here and i have to bandage it oh let's pretend your arm is broken and i have to fix it uh and then have your kids participate and do that or you know your significant other or whatever um uh but i just i know my kids just absolutely loved it when we would play that stuff um and so that gives you a chance to practice it and um it's it's been a few years since I had have since I've been on that wilderness rescue team, but I did it enough that I, um, you know, I'm still fairly proficient with it. So jumping back into the story, how do what, how do you assess the situation in terms of okay, I think I've controlled the bleeding, et cetera. But as you said, we've this was the end of breaking down the elk. We have 300 pounds of meat. We have, you know, yourself that needs some attention. Like what type of decision-making and events happen from that point? Yeah. Thank you uh, for asking that. Um, so as I looked at that, I got the bleeding stopped. I know that if I hike out and go to a hospital, go to an emergency room, it's going to be four hours until I get there on a Friday night they're not going to stitch me up and say, oh, yeah, head back into the woods and get your elk. Um, I knew that I needed to uh, get 
get that animal out. You know, that's, uh, and again, you know, I had this wound, but I, I had it controlled. Now, I, ha- I had this guy, Eric, that was there uh, to help. And, uh, oh, he's a, he's a logger. He's a huge, strong guy, which is great. Um, so that was super helpful. Uh, normally, when I get an elk, I plan on three days to get it out. Um, I, I take like two trips a day. I'm not, I'm not a very big guy, so I can't take huge amount of weight. And so I just take two trips a day and normally about six trips and I got the whole thing out. Um, and with Eric there, I knew we were going to be able to do better. Well, there's another guy, his name's Danny. He's one of these guys that I met up there on the mountain. I sent him an inreach and said, Hey, you want to come and help? And he said, I'll meet you at the trailhead at six o'clock in the morning. That is a good friend right there. Uh, you know, it was 730 at night and he had to leave his house at three. And he met us at the trailhead at six. So uh, that was great. Um, so we loaded up. Uh, Eric and I loaded up a pack. We had the re- the meat, you know, hung. So it was going to be okay overnight. Uh we each loaded up a pack, and as long as I kept my left knee straight, um, I could I could hobble along. You know, I had uh, uh, my hiking sticks, and and so if I was going downhill, I'd step first with the leg that had to stay straight, and then I'd catch the other leg up to it. And if I was going uphill, I'd first step with my right leg because I could bend it, and then I'd kind of drag my left leg back up to it. And uh, so it was a little slower than normal, but we um, went down to the trailhead. Uh, I, I normally, and I, like I did this year, I bring my camper on my truck. So, so that if something happens, you know, let's say I'm having a bad day and I just need to go get a good night's sleep in the camper. uh, You know, I can just go down to the trailhead and do that. So we hauled that first load down, got it in, in the cooler on ice um, I bring a big cooler with, uh, with ice in it that I can, uh, you know, put the meat in. So we got that load in, uh, and we got to the, we got to the truck about midnight, um, got a few hours of sleep. Uh, Denny got there and we headed back up and he had brought multiple pack boards. This was, this was, uh, a great thought on his part. So we went to the the site where the elk was and got him going and then eric and i went to back to our camps and we packed up our camps and started heading out and what denny did was he put the elk on the different pack boards and then he just started shuttling he'd you know he'd take a pack about a quarter of a mile and set it down and then go back and get another one and take it a little bit past the first one and then go get another one and take it a little bit past that. And so he was just, uh, you know, kind of leapfrogging, um, the meat down and, uh, Eric and I took our camps down and then we were able to come back and, and help him, uh, finish up with that shuttling. Uh, so again, I was moving pretty slow as long as I kept my legs straight. Uh, it didn't start bleeding again. And, um, and I just, just hobbled through it. Uh, again, I knew that, you know, like my life wasn't in peril. I wasn't worried about that. I, I'd gotten it to the point where that was fine. You know, if it was continuing to bleed, 
uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just gone to the ER, but, um, but I got it to stop. So I had, I had a job to do, you know, I had a responsibility to the elk to get the elk out. And, uh, and I will be forever grateful to Eric and Danny for just, you know, helping me get that taken care of. Wild. It, it, you make it sound easy to like, oh yeah, just assess the situation. And as, as long as I wasn't bleeding and as long as I moved this way, everything's fine. But <laughs> in the moment when you've had that type of injury and how much work it is to pack out an elk when you don't have an injury, just the way you mentioned, it makes it sound like easy and simple, but uh, I couldn't have been simple or easy. So <laughs> kudos to you. Yeah, it was neither simple nor easy, but I, <laughs> you know, it was, I, I knew I had that responsibility and I, and I knew that I had to, to, uh, to do my best, you know, now if I would have been all alone, nobody else life-threatening push the SOS, I'm not going to ask those guys, Hey, can you send somebody to pack my elk out? You know, you may end up losing meat at that point, mm-hmm. but you know, those are the decisions that you have to make, uh, along the way and so you know i i did my best and we ended up getting all the meat out and getting it on ice um uh by about two o'clock saturday afternoon so yeah so Mm -hmm. my my on x said that after i cut my leg um i did 15 miles jeez between the, the back and forth trips uh that i had to take and of course half of that was loaded so pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. When you finally got to medical care and they both assessed the wound and also probably it came out at some point of when it had happened and what you had done since then. But what was the reaction and feedback, for lack of better terms, from the medical providers? Yeah. So apparently if you go to the ER on a Saturday evening when it's full of people and you have a big cut on your leg, you get head of the line privileges. I, I walked into the ER and I saw those people and I thought, Oh, I'm going to be here for hours. And they had me back in a room in about two minutes. Um, so that was great. Um, the ER doc that came in, um, was very unhappy with me because it had been a little over 25 hours from when I got the cut until she was able to assess it. And normally they want to see you in about four hours. Um, uh, but, you know, I said, I, I didn't have that chance. You know, I had this other thing. And after we talked about it, you know, she kind of mellowed out, but they couldn't stitch it because what ends up happening is two things. One, the, you know, the wound will start healing um, and, and the other thing is you get dirt and bacteria and stuff down inside. And if they stitch it closed, it could have an inside infection, you know, a big abscess and all that. So they, they didn't want to, um, uh, they didn't want to stitch it. So I did, as she was looking at it, I said, man, look at how clean that wound is. And she said, this isn't clean. Look at all that hair and all that dirt. <laughs> So, you know, apparently had some elk stuff inside my inside my wound. And I said, no, 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 it's it's not clean like sterile. It's just a very nice incision. I mean, it was made with a scalpel, basically. And uh, and, and she was like, oh, yeah, 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 it's a nice incision. But 
Um, so they flushed it and they gave me some intravenous uh, antibiotics. And uh, then I got a really strong prescription for antibiotics. And then I just had to uh, uh, monitor it and, and, you know, make sure that it wasn't getting infected. Um, and, and they kind of taped it closed, essentially, but it was still able to kind of ooze and, and do its thing. And, and, and basically, I had to, you know, like lay on the couch for about two weeks. Um, because I didn't want to, you know, tear it open or anything like that and just let it kind of heal from the inside out, which, you know, we talked about fitness here a little bit ago. You know, you come off a hunt like that and then all of a sudden you lay on the couch for two weeks. Uh, there was quite a bit of atrophy that took place. You know, I just felt weak as a kitten when that was done. Um, and then I had to build back slowly. Um you know, because I didn't, again, I didn't want to tear it open. And, uh, and, you know, so I've just, you know, built back to my normal workouts uh, over time. I don't want to blame this incident on the knife, but has it caused you to reevaluate what knife you'll use or what type of knife you will use in the future? Yes. Yes, it has. Um, uh, thanks for asking that. So I, I heard Steve talk on one of the podcasts a while ago about how he cuts the crap out of his hand when he uses one of those knives. Um, and I think I know what he means. I, I don't think he means a big, huge gash anywhere, but just lots of little cuts because that mm -hmm. knife is so sharp that you got your hands working down in this bloody thing. And, and if that touches anything, it just cuts you. Well, part of the reason that I got that knife originally was because for some reason I was feeling kind of insecure about my sharpening skills and I was feeling like my knife sharpening skills weren't up to what I wanted them to be. And, uh, while I worked on that, I got a knife, you know, with a pre basically a pre-sharpened blade that I could just replace. Um, but I find the same thing that Steve said, every time I break down an animal with that, I make, uh, I'm not really satisfied with my cuts. It get the knife gets ahead of me. Not blaming the knife. I just I just work slow, and those super sharp knives work very fast, and so I just get behind the knife. So I think what I'm going to do is go back to my regular fixed blade knife that I've used, and and you know I've had the the uh, that replaceable blade knife for. I don't know, three or four years. And in that time, I've worked on my knife sharpening skills and I'm and I'm very confident in those now. So I'm I'm happy with what I can do with a knife to keep it sharp while I'm breaking down an animal. And and I don't get behind that knife. So that's what I'm going back to. Uh not saying anything bad about those replaceable blade knives. Um uh boy, they do a great job. Uh I just, uh, for my situation, I, I just get behind it. The I'm sure some listeners are wanting you to elaborate a little bit more on your knife sharpening. Have you found that it's been purely skill-based or did you find a specific sharpening system that has allowed you to be uh, more proficient over the last couple of years, as you mentioned? Um, it was, it was more skill-based. And as I learned more about it, 
I learned, you know, I wasn't unhappy with it before, but as I learned more about knife sharpening, um, my, my learning went faster than my skill building. And so all of a sudden I became aware that I wasn't sharpening a knife as sharp as I thought it should be. And so during that time, I just worked on the skills. And so, um, you know, I ended up with, uh, you know, like five different grits of stone going clear up to 8,000. And I use a strop. Um, and I found a little, a little steel that I can carry with me, uh, to touch the blade back up that does a great job. Um, you know, I can use, I can use the knife and, uh, and then as it, you know, as it gets dull, I can just clean it back up. Um, excuse me. And I've been, I've been doing that here at home on, you know, things where I use a knife, uh, just practicing because I don't like taking anything out into the woods that I don't feel super proficient with. So I didn't want to just go, Oh, here's a knife sharpening thing. Let's throw it in the pack and try it and then get out there and find that it, you know, doesn't really work. Um, so I've been using it at home. Uh, it works great. I have high confidence in it. And so that's, that's what I'll be going back to starting this year, uh, 2023's hunting season. This has been a great conversation on, on so many different levels or from different facets of, I think, both inspirational and practical and cautionary in a way. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to share all of it. Well, I, um, like you mentioned at the beginning, I've listened to all the podcasts uh, all the backcountry uh, uh, podcasts um, at least once, many of them multiple times. I have a short list that I listen to every year uh, before hunting season. So I've gained so much from you guys and from the other listeners that have talked. Uh, I'm, I'm just happy that I was able to give back. I've said this multiple times, but just to say it again, it's super fulfilling to have like this full circle of listeners who can come on the show and provide so much value. Um, it's it's super neat that I think we've created a bit of a community where the audience is also feeding each other in a way and like sharing those experiences and lessons versus just like I love getting the quote unquote experts on um, and learning from them and we'll continue to do that. But these episodes are special to me excellent um and i would i would say and, and you say this every time when you tell us hey if you have any ideas send a, an email i would encourage any of the listeners uh to write in to you if they've got an experience like this that we can learn from because i i enjoy it so much i get to listen to the stories i get to kind of put myself in that place and go you know what would i do how would that work for me you know and then maybe I go look at my backpack and go, oh, you know, I don't have that thing that he's talking about, or I don't have that skill that he's talking about. And then that just helps me to improve. So I, I hope this has been great for the listeners. Um, I hope everybody's enjoyed this uh, and learned something. Well, what a fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, as much as you heard that I did. And I truly did enjoy that conversation with Curtis and want to thank him for taking the time to share the story with us. If you have a story to share, um, maybe that's about a hunt that's happened or you draw a tag or you're planning on a hunt for this coming season, 
One thing I want to do again in 2023 is the listener before and after the hunt series. That's something we did in 2022, got a lot of great feedback from it. So if you want to maybe join us for that, or you have a specific hunt upcoming that you think would be a good fit to talk about both before the hunt and after the hunt, let us know. Send an email to podcast at xmongear.com. It would be great to hear from you. Uh, and we'll look at scheduling those in the months to come here of 2023. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in. You can hit subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app you are using to make sure that you receive the future episodes automatically for free. As always, thanks for doing that. And we'll talk to you soon.